Well, I started just a few weeks ago, spending a little bit of time at the beginning of our preaching time to do some little lessons on how to listen to sermons, and I'm going to uh, forego that for today and, and next week. This is a special week, and we want to stay as focused as we can on the events of the cross. Now, I know that your bulletins say that we are continuing in our Parenting for God's Glory series today, and thankfully the bulletin is not an inspired word of God, so we can contradict it. And um, I I was preparing my own heart for the upcoming important days of Good Friday and Resurrection Day, and I really began to be drawn to the thought of leading all of us to make a more concerted effort to not just wait until Friday evening at 6.29 p.m. to start drawing our affections to the cross and toward the empty tomb. Uh, Today is what is traditionally called Palm Sunday, after the day that Jesus rode toward Jerusalem on a donkey and was briefly hailed as king by some. Uh, It most likely happened on Monday, but that makes a lousy tradition. So we stay with Palm Sunday because it reminds us of the coming cross. And so today I really have one singular goal. This is all I want to do today. I want to convince you to truly make this, what the church has called this for centuries, Holy Week. And I'm hopeful that that will be something that we can do together. So my message this morning is titled, Preparing Your Heart for Good Friday and Resurrection Day. Preparing Your Heart for Good Friday and Resurrection Day. And you've already been at our text for this morning. Turn back to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Now, this psalm is a a song of spiritual victory. It's a victory song. It's a victory dance, as it were. It's a song that Israel declares that God has not forgotten them. It's a song that declares that his love for them will endure, it will last, it will continue. And I think it's important for us to consider the idea of spiritual victory. This is very, very important to you. It's important to me because all of you were born spiritually defeated. And so you you were brought forth in sin and iniquity, according to Psalm 51, verse 5. You share in the sin nature of your dual fathers, Adam and Satan. You were already the enemy of God, according to Romans 5, 10. You, You were not born with a moral blank slate, if I could put it this way. You were born on the doorstep of hell and glad to be there. You were left to die in your sin, Unless the Lord would step in to rescue you, you needed spiritual victory. You needed forgiveness of sin. Now, this psalm is meant to prepare the worshiper to make a journey. And this is a journey to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice, to worship God, to receive once again that desperately needed spiritual victory, that desperately needed cleansing from sin. It's the song of an individual worshiper, and and as we've already seen, it's an individual worshiper assisted by a choir of his fellow worshipers. And it really follows the the preparation of the heart. This is one of the, the ideas in this psalm here, that the worshiper is traveling with his family this great distance, and he's in in anticipation of being made right before God. That he is in anticipation of meeting with God at the temple. And being now cleansed of his sin. Now, from many places in Israel, it might take a number of days to travel with your family. It might take some time. You have to gather your family, all your possessions, all the things that you need to go and worship the Lord. From the northern regions, it would take as many as five days. And so let's just travel with a Jewish family 
with this worshiper who's leading his family, and we'll just name each day as they travel, as he prepares to worship God. This would, in essence, be their holy week as they go forward looking with anticipation to forgiveness. So let's follow along with the psalmist, and we'll see five days of spiritual victory. And so day one, we might name the reason for spiritual victory. The reason for spiritual victory. Now, the traveler and his family, very likely with other men and families from his village or his area, they would be packing up to make this journey all the way down south to Jerusalem to go to the temple. They would have to gather food. They would have to bring water and wine for the, for the trip. There would be animals that they needed to carry their things, and they would also have animals selected for sacrifice that would be led by ropes on this journey. They would need tents, they would need blankets, they would need everything that you need to make a long, dusty journey on foot to camp alongside the road. And so after packing up for a day or two at dawn, the journey on foot would begin, and the spiritual leader, or perhaps the the eldest man in the group, the worshiper, one of them would begin, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And everyone else would chime in, and you can do with me, for his steadfast love endures forever. He would say, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And so they would begin their journey with this anticipation that in in mere days, we're going to receive once again this steadfast love of the Lord. And what this is, is is a call to worship. It's a general call to be thankful for God's goodness. It's a call to the whole nation of Israel. In verse 2, that there's, there's no special person. There's no one who lacks a need for spiritual victory. There's no one who has God's extra special favor and kindness. No one has inherently earned God's merit. No one is innately worthy to receive forgiveness. And so it's a call to the whole nation. Then specifically, there's a call to the priests of Israel, to the house of Aaron. Aaron was the Levite brother of Moses from whom all the priests of Israel are descended. They're to remember that they're not somehow special. They're somehow not not less sinful. That just because they're the professional worshipers, as it were, that doesn't make them more special before God. That doesn't make them have less need for the grace of God, less need for his forgiveness. They don't have somehow a higher place in God's eyes. They too need grace. They too need atonement. They need to remember that it's God's steadfast love that sustains them. And then it's a call to the truly saved. In verse 4, let those who fear the Lord to be thankful for the Lord's goodness. This is, we could say it this way, an ancient gospel call. Because as the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 9, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is a call to the true God-fearers to remember God's graciousness and his goodness. This is also, by the way, a call to the fakers. It is an implied call. The ones who have packed their things to go to sacrifice. Maybe they're even traveling on this caravan with me and with my family to call to them because they are coming as Cain did. They're coming with an unrepentant and a proud heart. But the Lord must break them and they must come in brokenness. The Lord is not pleased with their sacrifice. 
And so the, the psalmist says, let those who fear the Lord, who are truly saved, who have an internal reality of faith, let them say his steadfast love endures forever. And then it's a call to those who do not fear the Lord. You had better come to faith because it is only in the Lord that you will receive that steadfast love. What is the steadfast love of the Lord? It's one word in Hebrew, the very familiar word chesed, which speaks of covenant-keeping love. Some of your English translations may translate it loving-kindness. But I think steadfast love does more justice to the word because it speaks of, of the ongoing, continuing, covenant-keeping work of God, that God does all the work of forgiving. God does all the work of drawing men to himself. God does all the work of approving sacrifice as effective. He does all the work of preserving people as continuing in the faith. He does all the work. It's, it's his steadfast love. And this is really an Old Testament shadow of the doctrines of grace, that salvation is by grace alone. That it is God's steadfast love, the grace of God to continue to love, not because the worshiper comes having merited anything, having earned anything. There's no good work that they can do. The worshiper will not arrive in Jerusalem and say, hey God, I was a pretty good person in the last few months. I was good to my wife. I was good to my kids. I was good to my animals. I was good to my neighbors. You should accept my worship. He won't say that because it's only the steadfast covenant-keeping love of God that endures forever. Our love doesn't. Only his endures forever. It lasts. And as the worshiper and his family make this journey, this concept that the reason for spiritual victory is the steadfast love of the Lord, this becomes very, very important. This is very real. This is very down to earth. This is as real as the dirt that they're walking on. Because since the last sacrifice, the worshiper has sinned many, many times. He's compiled a record of sinning with his tongue, with his heart, with his deeds, with his actions. He has not been faithful to the law of God as he desires to be. He has not been faithful to keep the rules and the statutes and the ordinances of the Lord. He has not been pleasing to the Lord every moment of every day. And since this last sacrifice, perhaps on the road, the, the memories of the dirty, filthy record of disappointing himself, disappointing the Lord, disappointing his neighbors, disappointing his wife, disappointing his children, these come rushing back because he hasn't experienced forgiveness in months. He hasn't had that weight lifted off of him. And so it's very important that he has this fourfold reminder that his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love. His steadfast love. And throughout the day of travel, the fathers are reminding their children of the reason for spiritual victory, that God is faithful. God is a chesed-giving God. And the traveling families would make camp. They're one day closer to coming to worship the Lord. And they do all the work that it takes. If you've ever been camping, I don't find it fun. It's more work than staying home. But they did all the work that it takes to get set up and, and for them this was not a vacation this was not for fun this was serious business and they, they rest that night and early the next morning they set out again continuing south to go toward Jerusalem day two we might call the certainty of spiritual victory the certainty of spiritual victory now throughout the history of Israel physical deliverance is very much tied to spiritual deliverance these two go together if the nation as a whole is following the Lord, they experience rest and relief from their enemies. 
And if the nation of the whole, as a whole is not following the Lord, then his spiritual discipline sets in often in the form of antagonism coming from surrounding nations. But here the worshiper affirms that, that despite the ups and downs of the discipline of the Lord, ultimately he would be victorious. And we see this in verse 5 when he says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Now, verse 5 very much parallels the entire book of Judges. The entire book of Judges is simply a cycle of times that the Lord has to discipline Israel. And here's the pattern. Here's the cycle. Israel would stray from the Lord. Then the Lord would spank them, as it were, with oppression from either the Philistines or the Midianites, the Moabites from Mesopotamia, from uh, Hazor, from the Ammonites. He had lots and lots of different paddles, and he used them all. And then the nation would cry out to God and he would set them free once again. And so on the basis of God's continual covenant faithfulness to deliver, the psalmist reminds himself in verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And the worshiper also reminds himself and ultimately those around him that no help is found in any source other than God. There is no help from any other place. There's no good work. There's no, no other resource I can go to. Verse 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now that lesson wasn't so apparent in the days of King Ahaz. Isaiah chapter 7 tells the story of the divided kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south, all Jewish, but a divided kingdom. The, the smaller, littler, weaker Judah in the south, they did house the line of David though. And now in the person of David's descendant, King Ahaz, they have problems because the bigger and stronger and meaner northern kingdom of, of Israel, they formed an alliance with Syria to come and attack Judah, to kill Ahaz, and to set up a puppet king and create their own little empire. Well, Ahaz didn't want to trust the Lord. He intended instead to call on Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, who was even more powerful than all of them. And he wanted to call on the king of Assyria for help and to attack this coalition force on his behalf. But Isaiah 7 is the story of God visiting Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah to assure him to say, you don't need Assyria's help. You worship me. You call on me. I will take care of this little problem like nobody's business. But Ahaz wouldn't do it. He refused to trust the God he could not see and instead wanted to trust resources he could see. Now the Lord did graciously deliver him anyway from the coalition force and he did use Assyria because Ahaz sent emissaries to them to ask for help. Big mistake. Do you think that Assyria would just say, okay, Judah, this little puny, tiny nation, we'll just go away now and wish you well. Nope. Assyria turned their sights on Judah. In fact, Second Chronicles 28 beginning in verse 20, records that Assyria said that they would be an ally, but once the coalition was defeated, quote, Assyria afflicted Ahaz instead of strengthening him. And no matter how much tribute, how much money, how much wealth, how much treasure Ahaz would send to Assyria, they would say, not enough, send more or you're dead. 
And so he fell into that trap. So the lesson of verses 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord. That was a hard-won lesson, never to be forgotten. The, the certainty of spiritual victory only comes by faith. There is no other means. There's no other resource. There's no other source of forgiveness, no other source of spiritual victory, no other source of a certain future. It comes by faith. Psalm 62, verse one, the psalmist says, for God alone, my salvation waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Well, they make camp again and now they're growing in their excitement because the worshiper has sung of the reason for spiritual victory. They've sung of the certainty of spiritual victory. And now on day three, as the families take to the road again, they sing of the suddenness of spiritual victory. The suddenness of spiritual victory. Follow along with me beginning in verse 10. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. If you're a sports fan, I think one of the most exciting things to watch is a come from behind win. And we love that. That's what keeps us coming back to watch, I think. Well, the victory that's given to the faithful in Israel, we could characterize this as a come-from-behind victory. Let's look at how their plight in history is explained here. They're surrounded, 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 surrounded. Four times the psalmist says this. that The enemy is like a swarm of bees. I mean, I turn into a scared little girl if one little bee comes around me and I start screaming and standing on a chair and all that. But the enemy is like this swarm that overwhelms and you can't run from it. They're like fire and dry thorns that just flashes in destruction. And verse 13, it says, I was pushed hard. The Hebrew is a second person pronoun. You pushed me hard, meaning the enemies. You pushed me hard so that I was falling. Now the English rightly translates this because it's a passive verb. I was pushed. There's a sense of helplessness. There's a sense of destitution here. You only have to read the Old Testament to see the the plethora of nations that have plagued Israel over time until God even, I I mean, it's unthinkable, even allowed Babylon to to conquer Judah, to carry off those that they didn't kill. Seemingly, the nation had fallen for good. They'd been pushed. They'd fallen. But three times, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Literally, I circumcised them. That's a violent way to say I win. The Israel would finally come out in victory. In verse 13, the Lord helped me. He helped me that that my victory came not because of my strength, not because I built this massive army, but it was a surprise come from behind win. It's the little scrawny football player who's put in the game at the last minute because there's nobody else and he's in the end zone and all of a sudden the ball's coming and he catches it and he's it. we win. I didn't do anything. It's a surprise. Certainly we see this in small part in Israel's return from exile. How did that happen? How did Israel escape the most powerful empire on earth? How did they escape? Well, it was brought about with a stunning intervention by God on Israel's behalf. Daniel chapter 5, we have this record of, of King Belshazzar of Babylon having a drunken feast with a thousand of his lords. 
And he's using the vessels of gold and silver that were taken, stolen from the temple of God to celebrate as they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And you remember the story that in their drunkenness, all of a sudden, the finger of God appears and wrote on the wall of the palace, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And they bring the prophet Daniel in to interpret. And here is the interpretation given by God. Quote, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And literally, as that prophecy was being given, the Medes and the Persians had already been silently invading the city of Babylon. They were already there. And hours later, they captured King Belshazzar, they executed him, and they took over. Why? So that the prophesied emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus, could, at the impulse of the Spirit of God, release Israel to go home. Israel conquered Babylon. How? They just stood there and watched. Because God used another army to do what they could not do on their own. So the worshiper recounts the come-from-behind triumphs, the suddenness of spiritual victory. Now the worshipers have almost arrived in Jerusalem and on day four, now as they set out again, they're more than halfway. They might call day four the impact of spiritual victory. The impact of spiritual victory. Now there's a definite tone of triumph that begins to flavor this song as the worshiper proclaims what God has done. In verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The worshiper here, he knows his Old Testament because this is an exact quote from Exodus 15, verse 2, the song of Moses. That Moses taught the people of Israel after being delivered through the Red Sea. Why is the Exodus so important? Because it stamped its likeness on the rest of the Bible as to what redemption looks like. All of God's redemptive acts throughout history, this is the pattern, this is the design, God's miraculous rescue of Israel from a pursuing enemy through a a sea that would rescue Israel and would judge the enemy. That became the prototype of what redemption looks like. That all hope is lost. Their their backs are against the sea. The army of Pharaoh is, is upon them. And behind them, amazingly, the sea opens up. And the instrument of their salvation, the path in the sea, would also become the instrument of God's judgment on the enemy. There's a definite note of triumph developing here. And now we see that the homes of the delivered are filled with joy. In verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. What a great thing to sing, even as you're in your tent on your way to Jerusalem. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And this is more of Moses' song that's quoted in essence here. Exodus 15, verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's verse 14. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. And so in verses 15 and 16, they they shadow that song that we're just as victorious as Moses and the people were so many centuries earlier. But the ultimate impact of spiritual victory is just said openly. It's put right out here in plain view. There's no metaphor. There's no symbolism. There's no picture here. This is just fact. Verses 17 and 18 I shall not die. 
but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Now remember that for the faithful Israelite, the the possibility of actual premature physical death at the hand of an enemy brought by God, this was very real. This happened all the time. But spiritual victory included protection. In Habakkuk 2 verse 4, it famously says, the righteous shall live by faith. Meaning in Habakkuk's day that when the Babylonians would come as predicted in chapter 1, God would preserve them. They would physically survive because they truly love him. The God has severely come against disobedient Israel, but ultimately the faithful could say, we will live and we will not die. We will survive. That's the impact of spiritual victory. And now day four, the travel to Jerusalem comes to an end and the the travelers are camped probably just outside the city by now. They wanted to make it as close as they could. And now they have all these assurances that the reason for spiritual victory, the certainty of spiritual victory, the suddenness of spiritual victory, the, the impact of spiritual victory. And the next morning, the worshiper awakens. He gets his family up for a brief travel into the city on day five. And this last day, we might call the claiming of spiritual victory. The claiming of spiritual victory. The worshiper has come to humbly receive what's been offered by God. Full pardon, full redemption, full cleansing, full forgiveness, full acceptance. And he comes, as it were, to the gates of spiritual victory. To the temple that he might meet with God. And based on God's offer of salvation, do you think he's going to come timidly? Do you think he's going to come with a a meek, mousy attitude? No, he calls out to be admitted. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And yes, yes, he knows that only the righteous can enter In verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And the worshiper is admitted. He's given spiritual victory. And what's his very first response is to be thankful. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. This is thanksgiving that the gates were opened and that he's been accepted. This is amazing that Israel this little nation that's just been continually pounded and pounded and pounded throughout history. Some might even call them a a damaged stone from a construction project that's so bad you just throw it out. Instead, this little nation has become the center of the worship of God on earth. We see in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the worshiper is in awe and marveling and he's giving God all the credit and all the glory. In verse 23, oh, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes that this day in which a sinful man may approach holy God and be saved and be forgiven and be cleansed and be made right, this very day was made, it was reserved by God for me, for me to rejoice in his goodness And so the worshiper celebrates in verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That when we beseech God for mercy, when we ask for mercy, verse 25, save us. 
We pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success that we receive welcome from God and we receive welcome from all who belong to God, all who already enjoy His favor, those who are already redeemed. Say this in verse 26, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And here comes the worshiper. He's journeyed so long. He's waited for so many months to receive acceptance and forgiveness from God. And he's given the best news ever. That because of his faith, God will receive his sacrifice. And so the worshiper is instructed. In verse 27, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. And here's the instruction. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now the sense here is better understood. Bring the sacrifice bound up to the horns of the altar, the the raised corners of the altar. In other words, God has determined to receive your sacrifice. God has determined to accept you based on shed blood. And therefore, God has made his light to shine on you. You are accepted. You are rendered as righteous. Your sins are cleansed. They are covered. And because of the accepted sacrifice, the worshiper rejoices. In verse 28, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. They've received spiritual victory. And now after that that weight of sin has been lifted. The burden of guilt has been taken away. They eat and perhaps stay another night and then they start to pack and get ready to go home. Fully justified, fully cleansed, possessing spiritual victory and they reprise the song with which they began their journey. Verse 29, O give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 was perhaps originally written for the Feast of Booths, the feast in which Israel looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. And the whole group of Psalms, uh, beginning in Psalm 118 all the way through 100, uh, 113, rather through 118, is sometimes called the Egyptian Hallel, the Egyptian Praise, looking all the way back to the time of Passover. Sometimes it's just called the Hallel, the Praise. And these Psalms from 113 through 118 came to be traditionally sung each year at Passover when Israel remembered the redemption of God from Egypt. At the very beginning of the Passover meal, Psalm 113 and 114 would have been sung. And at the very end of the Passover meal in which they remember God's redemption, God's gracious saving of them, Psalms were sung, now you did 115 all the way through 118, and it was sung to draw the heart and the mind to the glorious deliverance, the glorious rescue, the glorious redemption, the glorious salvation given by God, provided by Him and Him alone. And so the last thing that would happen at the Passover meal is that you would sing Psalm 118, and then the meal was finished. And so it's very significant that we read in Mark 14, verse 26. At the end of the final Passover that Jesus would celebrate with his disciples right before going to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and to await his arrest. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus Christ sang Psalm 118 in preparation for the cross. 
Listen, the original worshipers who used Psalm 118 in the Old, Te- Old Testament, they, they never could have guessed at, at the greater and bigger purpose, the ultimate relevance of this psalm. Because not only does God provide salvation for those who love him and fear him, Christ himself would call upon the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately through the cross would triumph. And we see this reflected in Psalm 118, beginning in verse 5. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. You can almost hear Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. To fulfill his mission on earth, Jesus never placed himself in the hands of men. The mission was always God's mission. In fact, John 2, verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't entrust himself to anybody but God. And we see this reflected in Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And the victory of Christ was a, was a sudden victory. It was a surprising victory. It was a, it was a, a come-from-behind win. As he's going to the cross, you would never say, and nobody said, look, he's going to spiritual victory. Nobody said that. It was a defeat. There were tears. There was anguish. There was grief. All hope seemed lost. The Messiah, he'd come. He was supposed to rescue Israel. Instead, he's dying. He's surrounded by his own brothers who hated him. He's surrounded by Jerusalem's leaders who hate him. He's surrounded by Romans who are willing to murder him. He's surrounded by the mocking who despised him. But suddenly the one who seemed to be cut off would do the cutting. In his death, he conquered sin. The curtain to the Holy of Holies is torn apart. Access to God is granted. It's a come from behind win after being surrounded four times over. He does the cutting. And we see this in verse 10. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Oh, and how Jesus would be taken to the brink of despair as a full human, such that he would cry out, Father, take this cup from me, such that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? but he would fulfill his victorious mission. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Like the song of Moses that this quotes, that celebrates that the Red Sea was the instrument of God's salvation as it parted for Israel and was the instrument of God's judgment as it came upon the Egyptian army. So the Lord Jesus is God's instrument of salvation as he parts the waters of your sin to get you through to righteousness and and holiness. And he has also become the death of sin, the death of condemnation. He has become the judge of wickedness and evil and iniquity. And Jesus, hours before being arrested so that he could be tried and so that he could be executed, he sang this. In verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live 
and recount the deeds of the Lord. Jesus would take the full wrath of God. He would take the severe, horrific fury of God Almighty on behalf of those that God would save. And Jesus would ultimately survive his own death because he would be raised. Verse 18, the Lord disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation that Jesus would, as a perfectly righteous man, he would burst through the gates that are inaccessible to you and to me, to sinful man. In verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And he would declare that many will now be made righteous because of him. In verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. He declares himself to be the gate of righteousness. Have we seen this in the New Testament? He declared in John 10, verse 9, I am the door, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He declared more famously in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, I am the road. In other words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And fully knowing what Israel didn't understand, completely about the stone that the builders rejected, fully knowing that it's not just Israel rejected by the world and then saved by God, fully knowing that he is in fact the stone that Israel, who are the builders of God's people, he is the stone that they would reject. He sang, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that in verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. And that from eternity past, a single day, one day, was set aside to accomplish the redemption of mankind. A single day in which Jesus Christ, the rejected stone, would suffer and die and become the cornerstone, the very foundation, the very solid rock upon which salvation is built. A single day in which Christ would be humiliated and tortured and whipped and beaten. A single day in which Christ would fall beneath the weight of his own cross because of blood loss as he is forced to walk to Golgotha. A single day in which he would willingly lay down on the cross and have nails pierce his wrists and pierce his feet. A single day in which he would feel his lungs collapsing and his heart racing at at, at an interminable rate with the stress of being unable to breathe properly as he slowly asphyxiates to death. On the cross, a single day in which on that cross his shoulders would be dislocated such that his wrists are also dislocated, such that his arm is six inches longer than normal. A single day in which God would pour upon him every one of your sins, every single evil thought, every single wicked deed, every single word that you have ever said in rebellion and sin against God, not only yours, but every person who would ever believe on him, He would pour this furious, righteous anger all at once on one day. And yet, what did Jesus sing about that day? In verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's phenomenal that he is celebrating the day of his own death. And of course, the truest identity of the one who comes in the name of the Lord from verse 26, was made clear just days earlier when Jesus rode to Jerusalem. Hosanna, 
Literally, save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is perfectly foretold in verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The worshiper who had returned home with his family had a problem. Because as soon as his sacrifice had been made and that lifting of guilt and that burden was gone, what happened that night when they're packing up to go? He yelled at one of his kids, got mad at his wife, kicked his donkey, and he starts it again. Unforgiven, unatoned for, uncovered sin. And by the time he gets home, he's already racked up another record against God. They have to keep coming back. They have to keep sacrificing. They have to keep shedding blood. But now, bound to a cross-shaped altar, the Lord's final and lasting favor has come in verse 27. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. Hebrews 9.12 tells us that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, that the binding of the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar only needed to happen once. And that was Christ. And Jesus, in the company of his disciples, the final verses that he would sing before going to the cross He sang, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 prepares the heart of the worshiper to offer a worthy sacrifice to God to receive spiritual victory. And Psalm 118 prepared the heart of the Lord Jesus to offer himself as a worthy sacrifice to God to provide spiritual victory. The Lord Jesus himself sang this psalm to prepare for the coming cross. Then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray to prepare his own heart for the coming cross. And so he sang, he prayed, and then he went to the cross. I told you that my one goal today is to convince you to truly make this holy week, to prepare your heart for Good Friday and for Resurrection Day. So I want to address all of you here today who are heads of households. To the heads of households, the spiritual leaders of your family. If if that's just you, then you're the spiritual leader of your family of one. If you're a mom or a dad raising your kids on your own, if you're a husband or father, with a family at home or a husband just with your wife, I want to address the heads of households. I want to encourage you to join in what my family will be doing this week, and that is to emulate the Lord Jesus in his preparation for the cross, to first sing the hymns of the cross this week. They're easy to find. They're gathered all together in our hymns of grace. They start at number 271 and go through 305. Sing the hymns of the cross. If we want to emulate the Lord Jesus, then the second thing I would ask you to do is to spend family time in prayer, thanking God for the cross. Consider the shame, consider the humiliation and the agony that Christ endured for our sake. 
don't just jump to the resurrection. The, the resurrection can only happen through agony and death and weeping and misery. And so sing of the cross, pray of the cross, and then in your homes, third, go to the cross. Go to the cross. Read through the various accounts of the death and resurrection of Christ. Do this as a family. I would encourage you to do that this week, to sing of the cross, pray of the cross, and then go to the cross. In your homes, make it such that when every single one of you arrives here Friday evening at 6.30, you've been at the cross for a long time already. That your hearts are prepared. Luke 9.51 says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And could I exhort you, the families of Grace Bible Church, this week, Holy Week, set your faces to go to Jerusalem. Can we do that? Let's do that together. Our Father, we come to you now, thankful for the cross, and we do begin to prepare our own hearts because we are faced with this this irony that in order to know you, in order to experience the delights of forgiveness and the lifting of guilt and the, the taking away of the burden of sin and to experience a future home in heaven, to experience all the delights that are at your right hand, as Psalm 16 says, to experience eternal life, to experience fellowship with the body of Christ, your son had to die. And it's just not fair. It's not fair that the only perfect man who ever lived, the epitome of love, the epitome of graciousness, that he would die in my place who is the epitome of sinfulness and wretchedness and filthiness. And Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman who is here today, a boy or a girl who is here today, who has not yet received that gift that even this day they would receive the gift of Jesus Christ freely offering to exchange his life for mine. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel of Christ and it is my deep and abiding prayer that as a local body of believers we would prepare our hearts for the cross. That we would prepare for Good Friday because we are overjoyed by Christ and at the same time we mourn his death. And so, Lord, bring us to the cross this week. We pray all for his sake and all, all that he might receive would be glory and honor and reward and riches and wealth and a kingdom for he has done so much for us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.